from Seattle Magazine this past week. At one Seattle church, marijuana serves an unusual role. For some advocates, the issue of marijuana policy reform is not as much about inequitable enforcement or civil rights as it is about spirituality. In a nondescript South Park building next to the Meximark Taqueria, the Reverend Damaris Strom Hughes runs a place she calls the Wormhole Church, where marijuana is used as a sacrament. So you can have the bread, the wine, and the puff all at once. Smoke lingers in the church's reception area, a small office space lined with donated food, clothing, and books available to anyone who needs it. We use marijuana because it elevates our consciousness and makes us feel good. When you feel good, you feel God, says Strom Hughes. Half of the 120 or so wormhole churchgoers who attend Saturdays, ah, would you go to a church called the Wormhole? <laughs> that alone, to me, is like, what? Anyway, half of the 120 wormhole churchgoers who attend Saturday services come for spiritual reasons. The other half, <laughs> for medical purposes. Speaking of which, this lower back pain has really been, I don't know, bothering me lately. Strom Hughes does not sell pot, but she does give adults their daily sacrament in exchange for a small donation to the church. (laughs) She believes marijuana helps people follow Jesus and treat others with the love, kindness, and compassion that Jesus exemplifies, which shows me that at least in some churches, things are just going to pot. I guess you could call that a higher calling. It has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about this morning, except for the fact that this idea that when you feel good, you feel God is completely, completely wrong. You can feel terrible and be right squarely in the will of the Father. We were talking in worship team this morning that sometimes you don't feel it, but you remain faithful to Him. Because it's not about every day walking in this spiritual high. We couldn't handle the kind of spiritual high that we long for if we had it 24-7. Sometimes it doesn't feel great. Sometimes it's not like, wow, everything's going my way, so God must be in my life. Sometimes it's hard. But there's always strength in the difficulty. There's always joy, even in the sorrow, when you walk with Jesus. 2 Kings chapter 19 this morning. We're going to take bits and pieces out of the next three chapters of Kings to look more into the life of Hezekiah. We'll begin with verse 14 of 2 Kings 19. I was really struck by this verse on Wednesday night. I spent some time talking about it then. We look at it again this morning. 2 Kings 19.14 says, Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Father, we come before you this morning and we, we spread out before you our hopes and aspirations and dreams and desires. Lord, we spread out before you our difficulties and hardships and, and persecutions. Lord, we, set, we spread out before you our business plans, our associations, our lives. We spread them out before you. And we ask, Lord, that you will determine our steps. We pray, Father, that you will plan our ways. We pray, Lord, that you will give us right response 
to the attacks of the enemy. We pray, Lord, that you would go before us and that you would hem us in from behind. We ask, Father, that as we spread out our hearts before you this morning, that you would encompass us on every side. Father, deal gently with us and tenderly, but help us to understand and to know better your will for our lives, that we might walk with you. Father, we thank you for the pages of Scripture before us, and we ask that your Spirit will, as we do, week in and week out, speak to us and teach us. Write these words on our hearts and in our minds such that, Father, we will act on them and be motivated and changed by them. Only your word can do this, Lord. And so we ask for that now in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Joel chapter 1, verse 1, tells us the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all the inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. And let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. The prophet Joel prophesied in the days of Judah. Toward the last days of the southern kingdom of Judah, his little three-chapter prophecy begins in chapter 1 by the description of a plague of locusts. But he draws a parallel between the locusts of chapter 1 and the invading armies and even the day of the Lord in chapter 2. He says the locusts are a picture, Israel, of what's really coming. Of something far worse that you have not yet experienced. He talks about an invasion from the north. And in 722 B.C., that date that should be getting fixed in your minds by now, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, wiped them out, that invading locust-like army from the north. It actually happened three times. Assyria in 722 B.C. Babylon would also come around and invade from the north in 586 B.C. And the third invasion, well, hasn't yet occurred. For Ezekiel talks about an invasion from the north, a locust-like invasion that will happen, we're not sure when. It's called the Gog-Magog invasion. We talked about it in a prophecy update a little while ago, Ezekiel 35, 6, 7, and 8. And if you want to hear that, it's online and you can listen to it at our website. But three invasions, three locust-like invasions from the north. You might ask, well, how do we know the locusts described by Joel in the beginning of his prophecy are describing armies and not just locusts? Because locusts invade the land typically from the south. They will come up on the land, up out of Egypt, up out of the Sinai Peninsula. These invading locusts were armies from the north. And in this case, the swarm was mighty Assyria. A vast, brutal, conquering army which had already laid waste to the northern kingdom of Israel by the time Hezekiah comes into power. In fact, in the first four to six years of his reign, he watched, the people of Judah watched, as the northern kingdom of Israel was wiped out and carried off into captivity. As other nations that had been conquered by Assyria were relocated in the lands of Israel. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that the Samaritans, that we read about, story of the Good Samaritan, 
The Samaritan woman by the well. The Samaritans are people who were made up of those originally brought in by the Assyrians after the conquest and conquering of Israel. A mixture of other nations with those Jewish people who remained, that small number that remained in Israel, and that made up the Samaritan people, which is why in Jesus' day, the Jews so hated the Samaritans, because they believed that they were a mixed breed, that they were not truly Jewish. Well, Assyria has conquered, and now they're like this threatening massive storm cloud just to the north of little Judah. Now, they had already come up against Judah, but temporarily they were distracted, as we saw on Wednesday night. They were distracted by other battlefronts. They were called back to fight in other areas. But just so Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and the rest of the Judean people would know that they couldn't relax, a letter was dispatched to King Hezekiah. A letter from the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, saying that they are still coming to annihilate Judah. Don't relax, don't sit back, we're coming to get you. That is the letter that Hezekiah takes into the temple and rolls out before the Lord. And begins to pray about. Sennacherib, his name literally means, sin has multiplied his brothers. Sin has multiplied his brothers. It's a conquering name. For the, the word sin there is not sin like we think of it. It's the moon god Sin, the god of Assyria, who was named Sin. And so this moon god has multiplied his brothers. And the concept is, the idea in this man's name is you will go forth and conquer and multiply Assyria until it owns and conquers the whole world. Now it's interesting to me because Sin, being the moon god of Assyria, many of you know that Allah, the God of Islam, originally was the moon god of Muhammad's tribe, the Quraysh tribe. Islam, like Assyria, is about conquest. Islam, as a religion, is a religion of conquest. WorldNetDaily.com, it's a great place to get news from a Christian perspective. July 31, 2008, tells us the following interesting article. Masab Youssef son of one of the most popular leaders in Hamas today, the Sheikh Hassan Youssef, has moved to the United States and converted to Christianity. It's the kind of thing that shocks us. In fact, one of the things we don't hear a whole lot about today is the massive number of Muslims in the Middle East who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ in these last days, which is pretty cool. So now the son of a higher up of Hamas is in the United States. He's claiming conversion to Christianity. And he said the following. He said, I know I'm endangering my life. I'm liable to lose my father. But I hope that he'll understand this and that God will give him and my family patience and willingness to open their eyes to Jesus and to Christianity. Maybe one day I'll be able to return to Palestine and to Ramallah with Jesus in the kingdom of God. Masab also said he previously aided his father with Hamas activities, but now he has an affection for Israel and he laments Hamas. He said, send regards to Israel. I miss it. I respect Israel and admire it as a country. But he added, you Jews should be aware. You will never have peace with Hamas. From the son of one of the Hamas hierarchs, you will never have peace with with Hamas. Islam, he said, as the ideology that guides them will not allow them to achieve a peace agreement with the Jews. And I read that article and I thought, you know, it reminds me that there are really only two possible ways to achieve peace in this world. One way is when both sides desire it and will lay down their arms and come together and covenant in peace. That's one possible way to achieve peace. The only other way to achieve peace is when Jesus Christ brings it. Either he brings it to us in our lives so that we can live lives 
that have a peace about us that is unusual, that is not understood even by the world, or the peace that He will bring to the Middle East and to this world when His kingdom comes. Jesus can bring our peace. But peace is something that Jewish people have rarely known. Throughout history, there has never been a people so warred against, so brutalized as the Jewish people. Hezekiah did not live in a time of peace. Hezekiah, as a great king, and we talked about last week, he is one of the three greatest kings of Judah. One of three guys who are listed to be like their father David, to actually have a relationship with the Lord. Asa, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And of the three, Hezekiah is the one that is counted as the greatest of all these kings. You may remember Hezekiah's name means Yahweh is my strength. Why is Hezekiah listed as the greatest among the kings next to David? Because Hezekiah was a king of prayer. It's as simple as that. If you look at his life, all we can really draw out, the one thing that stands out about Hezekiah is this king prayed. While Judah's knees were knocking, Hezekiah's knees were bent in prayer. And in one of the most practical examples of how to pray, and I love this, in verse 14, he takes this letter, tangibly, literally, physically, takes this letter, goes into the house of the Lord, and rolls it open. And he begins to pray over the letter. That's a great idea. To bring what we're doing and and how we're acting, to bring our our business ideas before the Lord and, and spread them out before Him. To take the plans that we have for a church building and to roll it out as, as our elders did. Roll it out. We're still looking at things. We're, we'll show. We'll get that out to you. We'll show you what kind of what might be happening here. But to roll it out before the Lord, to spread it out and say, Lord, is this, is this your will? Or Lord, tell me what to do with this. How do I handle this? When was the last time you got a threatening email from someone who was angry with you and you printed it out and took it to the house of the Lord? and knelt down before the Lord and just set it there and put a hand on it and said, Lord, what do I do? Typically, when I get a threatening email, I'm like, okay, I'll just respond to you. And the Lord says, how about bringing it here? Hezekiah does this. This is why he's a great king. Did you see the opening games of the Olympics? Did you watch the the opening spectacle? I mean, it was unbelievable. It was was really impressive. I, I watched it with my with my folks who have been visiting us this last week and, and just the fireworks at the end when they lit the torch. Did you see that part? They, they brought the torch in, they gave it to this guy and he's standing on this little platform all of a sudden he takes off. They had him on, on pulleys and he came up to the height of the whole entire you know, arena there and begins running in the air and he runs 360 degrees all the way around the arena back to where the torch has appeared. Massive torch. He lights the thing, it shoots up and goes around the torch and up the top and boom. And then the fireworks began. And I have never seen fireworks like that. I mean, it seemed like the whole town, the whole city of Beijing just, just went up in amazing display. And I was watching this thing. Did you see that the part, this was incredible too, with on, on the floor of the arena when the scroll opened up? I have no idea how they did this thing. And if you didn't see it, you've got to go back, go on YouTube or something and, and watch what they did. But it looks like this massive scroll. It was 70 feet in, in height and then it went out to over 300 feet in width it's this huge scroll it just starts unraveling and opening up and it keeps going out and then when it actually gets to the end it continues spinning on the ends and in the middle there's a screen and these dancers came out and they started dancing and as they were dancing on the screen 
it began to show us a, a drawing, a picture. I forget what they call it, but it's a Chinese form of art. And then all the other dancers around, and this, it, it was just um, unbelievable, incredible, humanistic. I sat there watching this grand celebration, and through the whole thing, my heart got heavier and heavier and heavier as I realized in this fantastic spectacle possibly one of the greatest celebrations and spectacles that has been seen in our time and Jesus isn't mentioned once no acknowledgement of God the Father oh an acknowledgement of the past of, of mankind and the present and the hope that mankind and the animal kingdom will one day be united in this glorified fantastic multicolored thing and I thought, I wonder what God's thinking right now. I wonder how the Lord feels when He looks down on His children and sees them celebrate like that without even one person saying, Praise God. Pretty incredible. See, that's how the world unrolls a scroll. That's how a world, the world spreads things out. Look at what we can accomplish. Look at what we are and what we've done and what we can do. Hezekiah unrolled... His scroll before the Lord and prayed over it. I was reminded, looking down at that great scroll, that the two verses came to mind as I was watching this thing. Hebrews 10.7, where Jesus said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, O God. I have come to do your will. And then in Revelation chapter 6, verse 14, that tells us the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. And every mountain and island were removed out of their places. So you want to know Jesus. Because this island ain't going to be here when the sky is rolled back as a scroll. Well, Hezekiah unrolls this threatening scroll. He spreads it out before the Lord to pray. And again, it's the hallmark of the life and character of Hezekiah. This is a king of prayer. He reveals, I'll give you a couple things if you're a note taker. He reveals a persistency in prayer. Hezekiah continues to go back to the Lord again and again. There are three great moments in his life that we look at that we recognize this guy believed in prayer. This king prayed to the Lord. This was a king of prayer. A persistency in prayer. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Peter wrote, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Now when you hear that, listen, casting all your anxiety upon him. What was Peter's occupation? He's a fisherman. What does a fisherman do? He casts his nets. And that's exactly what Peter does. He is casting his nets in his job. He would go out and they'd take the boat out into the galley and they'd cast the net over the side and they'd wait a few minutes and then they'd pull the thing up. Any fish? No. Cast it again. Pull it up. Cast it again. Over and over and over. And in the mind of this fisherman, in fact, the word he uses, epiripto, epiripto is the word for casting, and it is a fishing word. It's how a fisherman would cast his nets. And so the picture that Peter is drawing for us is powerful here. Casting your anxiety on him again and again and again. You don't just throw the net over the side one time. You keep doing it. And you remember the story in Luke chapter 5? Where Peter had been doing that all night long, casting his net into the water over and over and over, and they didn't catch a single thing. A night's worth of hard fishing. And he comes into the shore, and here comes Jesus, followed by a crowd of people. And so Peter and the other apostles, they're cleaning their nets. They're trying to get it all taken care of. He just wants to go home, maybe have a bowl of oatmeal and go to bed, you know? And Jesus comes up and says, Hey, can I stand in your boat? 
Yeah, go ahead. Cleaning the nets. And then Jesus says, Hey, Peter, let's cast off from shore a bit. You know, I see the people a little better. Alright, you guys keep cleaning. Gets in the boat. Oh, wait, wait, Peter, bring the nets. Let's go fishing. And Peter says, We've been casting all night long. And Jesus says, One more time. Throw it over the side of the boat. And Peter does and has the miraculous catch. It reminds me that in our prayers, persistency is required. Persistency is important. Because we may cast and cast and cast and cast all night long and not hear a response and not know a thing. I feel like maybe God is just absent and it's one more cast. That's all it takes. Persistency in prayer. That's how fishermen cast their nets. And when Peter says, cast your your cares upon him... Over and over and over, you keep casting and you don't give up because the morning is near. Well, look at the story in in Hezekiah's life. Hezekiah took the letter, verse 14, from the hand of the messengers and read it. He went up to the house of the Lord, spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Wouldn't it have been great to hear that at the opening games of the Olympics? You alone, Father, make it possible for us. I, I mean, I would just fall apart. If something like that happened. No flash, no glitz, no glamour. Just one guy to walk out in the middle of the arena and begin reading Hezekiah's prayer. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen, he says, to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods. They were the work of men's hands, wood and stone. And so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from the hand, from his hand, that all the kingdoms on the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, that you alone are God. Then Isaiah, the son of Amaz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me I, about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. I really like that response. God says, I hear you. I hear you, Hezekiah. The Lord even sends another person, Isaiah the prophet, to confirm that there has been clear reception. By the way, a little side note, something I'm just beginning to learn about confirmation in prayer. In the church we will pray a lot and we'll ask other people to pray with us. And we'll ask someone to confirm what God is telling us to do. Confirmation in prayer is not necessarily a brother or sister in Christ coming to you and telling you what to do. Or giving you their advice or their opinion. Confirmation in prayer is when someone tells you something you've already heard from the Lord. You pray about it. You say, Lord, I need an answer. Give me an answer in my heart. We were just talking last night with Bill and Sharon about how do you know? How do you really know when God is speaking to you? Well, confirmation in prayer, gang, is when you pray about it and you have a sense that God is telling you to go a direction. And you ask others to pray as well. And when they come back and they, they tell you what you already know, you have confirmation. It's not people saying, well, I think you should, well, I think we, well, let's pray about it, but first let me tell you what I think. I don't care what you think. I want to know what the Lord thinks. He's already told me something. I'm looking for that confirmation. 
Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that's another way you know that God is speaking to you. You have a peace. Not a false peace, not a self-generated peace. You just know. You know that He's doing something. You know He's at work. Skip down to verse 29 of 2 Kings 19. The Lord answers through Isaiah. He tells, he tells Hezekiah some fantastic things and he says, this, this king has mocked not only you but me. I'm with you, Hezekiah. I will guard you. I will take care of you. And then he says, this will be the sign for you. Here's how you know I'm with you. You will eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same, and in the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. Remember what I told you about the Assyrian army. It was like an army of locusts. And the Lord is saying, here's my guarantee that I am with you and will protect you, Hezekiah. This year you're going to eat the fruit of the land. It will not be stripped away. The land will not be raised, as was the custom of the Assyrian army. You're going to go out into the fields. Your farmers don't even have to farm this year. You just go out and it will be there for you. Next year, go back out to the same fields. The fruit of the land will be there for you. And then in the third year, go ahead and sow, reap, harvest, farm the land like you normally do. But the next two years, I will prove that I'm with you by giving you the fruit of the land and you don't have to even have farmers out there gathering it. Verse 30. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. I really like that picture. That's, that's really what a walk with Christ is about. That's what faithfulness is about. Bearing root downward into Jesus and, and, and bearing fruit upward as we live for Him. Verse 31, For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, for out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. Not the power of Hezekiah or the strength of the Judean army. No, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He will not come to the city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came... By the same, he will return. He shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. What a prophecy. What a promise. I mean, put yourself in Hezekiah's place for a moment and recognize you're surrounded by the greatest army on earth. Bearing down on you, threatening letters have been sent to you. You have no hope, nowhere to run, nowhere to turn. And the Lord says, not even a single rogue arrow is going to make it over the wall. I mean, that, you would expect that to happen. Some guy's messing with his bone arrow. Ping, oh, sorry. <laughs> My fault. Not even that's going to happen. Jerusalem will be 100% protected. Why does God answer the persistent prayer of Hezekiah? Well, it might surprise you to find out it's not because he's persistent. The Lord gives two reasons why He will answer Hezekiah's persistent prayer. Number one, for His own sake. And number two, for the sake of His servant David. Verse 34. I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. God loved David that much. But I believe there's a parallel here for us, gang, because David had a son. The son of David, Jesus Christ. 
And in the same way that God performed this miracle and protected the city for David his servant, so he will perform the miraculous in your life and save you and save me for the sake of the greater than David, David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Matthew 22 verse 42 tells us the Pharisees were gathered together and Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. And he said to them, well then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he David's son? No one was able to answer Jesus a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. (laughs) I love that story. But I tell you this to pass along an encouragement. In the same way, the Lord heard Hezekiah's prayers for the sake of his servant David. So he hears your prayers and the prayers of his people for the sake of the son of David, Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, by the way. And this is important. It's not just a catchphrase. In Jesus' name, amen. It is our confidence. We don't say in Jesus' name, amen, because it's a a quick and easy way to finish the prayer. We speak it as a word of confidence. I am praying in the name of Jesus Christ. I am calling out the name of Jesus because it's for His sake that God hears my prayers. It's for His sake that I am saved. It's because of who He is that God responds and reacts in my life. It's our confidence, not a catchphrase. So the Lord hears the persistent prayers of the people who pray in the name of the Son of David, our Lord Jesus. This is the greatness, by the way, of Hezekiah. So what happened to him? Look at verse 35. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, I like this, behold, all of them were dead. I'm not sure how they rose early in the morning if they were all dead. (laughs) Obviously not all of them were dead. 185,000 were The people who were left, those of Assyria, woke up, walked out of their tents, and spread out over the whole land. 185,000 corpses were lying there. We were coming back from Yakima on Monday. Just thought we'd take a little holiday vacation down there for a day. And as we were driving back through kind of the desert area, we came along uh, Highway 82 back toward 90, and there was a car that had just moments before flipped over and was completely smashed up on the, in the median between the two roads. There were papers and books and, and clothes and stuff strewn all over the place. And as I looked back out of the windows we're driving away, I saw a man lying face down on the ground who was the color of ash. And I'm not still completely sure what happened, if he died or not, but in that, this is ironic, and I'm, I'm not making this up. I was listening to my iPod at the moment, and the song by Kansas, the old song, Dust in the Wind. Dust in the Wind, all we are is dust in the wind. And to hear that song, and to see that guy lying face down on the ground, and to realize the frailty of our life, and how instantaneously it can be over, 185,000 guys died that night, and it was, that was it. We think we're so invincible. This Assyrian army thought they were so powerful. No one could stop them. Gang, nobody is invincible and no power in the heavens above or the earth below can stand against the power of the Lord. Look at verse 36. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. You've heard of Nineveh. 
Remember God sent Jonah to Nineveh to give them opportunity to repent? It's the capital of Assyria. It came about as he, this is Sennacherib, was worshipping in the house of Nisroch his god, that Adremelech and Sherezer, these are his sons, killed him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Asarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Speaking of the ultimate doom of Nineveh, the capital of the great Assyria, Nahum said in his prophecy, Nahum chapter 1 verse 6, Who can stand before the Lord's indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in days of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. When it all comes down, gang, you'll want to be on the side of the Lord. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, at this point in Hezekiah's life, we're saying, praise the Lord, he's protected. Hallelujah, Judah's saved. Hezekiah, king of prayer, made it all happen in his relationship with God. Well, the plot thickens a bit here. For in addition to the persistency of prayer in Hezekiah's life, we can learn something else. It's subtle, but it's vital to understand. And I would call it a precarious problem with prayer. A precarious problem with prayer. Chapter 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. If someone came to you with that word, how would you react? You know, Heather, if I came to you this morning and said, You know, I've been praying all night, Heather, and I have a word for you. Get your stuff together. Get your house in order. You're not going to live. God has ordained for this to be your last day. question is, are you ready? If someone were to tell you that today, is your house in order? I have watched some precious saints over the years discover that they had a cancer that was life-threatening. And some have responded by smiling and saying, If this is it, I'm ready to go. And others have responded with fear and doubt and and trepidation. If you knew that you were going to die, Hezekiah has something most people don't have. He has a moment's warning. The Lord says your life is almost over. You are going to die. Get your stuff in order. Would you fight a word like that? Would you pray against it or would you receive it? Hezekiah... Praise against it, he is not ready to go. Verse 2. He turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a good heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Pay close attention to what Hezekiah is doing here. He is just this far from throwing a complete temper tantrum. He turns his face to the wall. He is weeping bitterly. This great king of prayer, this godly king who walked after the pattern of David, is whining. Now you might read this and say, Rick, that's a little too far. I think you're being harsh on Hezekiah. Really, go to Isaiah chapter 38. Isaiah 38. Where we have Hezekiah writing about this situation himself. Contained in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 38 and verse 9. Listen to what it tells us. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. 
So he's better now, but he's writing about what happened. He said, in the middle of my life, I said, in the middle of my life, I am about to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. And I said, I will not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I will, not look, I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. As a weaver, I rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. I compose my soul until morning. Like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me. Now watch this verse 14. Like a swallow, like a crane, so I twitter. I moan like a dove. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my security. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I will wonder about all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O oh Lord, by these things men live. And in all these things is the life of my spirit. O oh, restore me to health and let me live. You see what happens? Verse 13 tells us he composed his soul until morning. I can see him there. Hezekiah in his kingly garb. And Isaiah comes in and says, This illness is to death. You are going to die. And he says, Okay. Let me give that some thought. And he goes into his bedchamber, lies down on his bed, rolls over, faces the wall, and twitters. Lord, no! Not me! Not now! It's not fair! He moans like a dove. You heard a dove in the morning? He is whining, he's complaining, he's saying, not now, this is not for me, you're you're taking away the best years of my life. Really? It's amazing how he responds. Go back to 2 Kings chapter 20 verse 4. It tells us though, before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him saying, return, and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. Now there's a little connection for you students there with the third day that I won't go into this morning. But the Lord says in verse 6, I will add another 15 years to your life. And I will deli- I'm not sure I would want to know I had 15 years. Because every year I'd be counting down, wouldn't you? Hey, that's 14 years and 12 months, 14 years and 11 months. I mean, it would be terrible, but I'm going to give you 15 more years. And he says, I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my sake and for my servant David's sake. Which means that this sickness was happening exactly at the same time that the whole Assyrian problem was happening. Overlay the two. And then Isaiah said, Take a cake of figs, and they took it, and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. Great news. So Hezekiah whined a little bit. The Lord answered him. But listen. And this is what I want you to get this morning. Two things happened in those additional 15 years of Hezekiah's life that would not have happened had he not prayed for more time. And we need to be aware of those. Skip down to verse 12 after Hezekiah is healed. At that time... Baradak Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house. 
the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries there was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them apparently this up and coming nation of Babylon sends an envoy to meet with Hezekiah they send him get well cards and a balloon bouquet and all kinds of things Hezekiah is well he's healed he's happy I've got 15 years to go and he's so excited about his healing that he takes these messengers and the first problem is he showed off the kingdom to Babylon now we have hindsight we know who it is that conquers Judah it's Babylon. As if laying out candy before a baby, he puts a temptation out there for Babylon that will not be forgotten. Verse 14 tells us Isaiah the prophet came to him and said to him, What did these men say? And from where had they come to you? And Hezekiah said, Well, they come from a far country. <laughs> Way down there. Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And so Hezekiah answered, Well, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Isaiah says, What were you thinking? Where, where, where was your brain? That you would show off all the treasuries of Judah to Babylon? You've just set the ball in motion for Babylon to come and strip Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And this is where it began, gang. In the last 15 years of Hezekiah's extended life. He should have been safe in heaven. Instead, he was showing off to Babylon. But that's not the worst of it. For it was in the last 15 years of his life that not only did Hezekiah show off the kingdom, but Hezekiah sired a son named Manasseh. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed from the sons of Israel. Watch this. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and he made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem I will put my name. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord that is the temple. He made his son pass through the fire. In other words he sacrificed his infant son to the God of Moab. He practiced witchcraft. He used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made, that many-breasted goddess of fertility. He set this in the house of the Lord, which the Lord said to David and his son Solomon, in this house, 
and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them, but they did not listen. And Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Unbelievable. Manasseh comes along and he unravels everything that Hezekiah did that was so good. We are back to square one, gang. We are worse than square one. Hezekiah removed the high places. His son Manasseh restored the high places. Hezekiah broke all the bales and the Asherah poles and everything else. And his son Manasseh restored them all and brought in spiritism and witchcraft and medium focus and, and the whole thing. In verse 16 of chapter 21, it tells us, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Besides his sin, with which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Jewish tradition holds that it was Manasseh who ordered the execution of the prophet Isaiah. By having Isaiah placed in a hollowed out log and sawing him in half. This was the work of Hezekiah's son. Manasseh brought 55 years of sin, brutality, and wickedness into the kingdom of Judah. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying, gang, that when we cry out in prayer, I want my way. I don't want what you want for me, Lord. I want what I want for me. We lack something huge this side of heaven, and that is the perfect perspective in prayer. When we say, God, my will and not yours, we are missing the beauty of prayer. We're missing the power of coming before the Lord, which is to say, Father, what do you want? Yeah, but Rick, Manasseh, or Hezekiah was going to die. Yeah, in God's perfect will. Had Hezekiah died when the Lord called for his death, had his days been numbered as the Lord had numbered them and not extended Babylon wouldn't have known of the treasures and Manasseh wouldn't have risen to the throne. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13.12 For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Now I know in part then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. We don't have the perfect perspective. We don't know what we need to know to make decisions in our life that are right. The Lord does. That's why we go to Him in prayer. Not to demand our way, our will. Jesus has the perspective we desperately need, which is why the Bible tells us He always lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.21 The Bible tells us in Romans 8.26 In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according, listen, according, don't miss this, according to the will of God. Jesus makes intercession with the perfect perspective that we lack. It doesn't mean we can't make requests to him when we pray. Don't get me wrong. Hezekiah unrolled the scroll and said, Lord, you're the king of, of all things. You're the God of heaven. Save us. 
He brought his requests, his petitions, his supplications to the Lord. That is right. That is good. But when we pray, the question is, am I seeking my desires or his perspective? I need his perspective because mine's defective. I said earlier, when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just a catchphrase, it's our confidence. Listen, when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just a catchphrase, it's our confidence and it's our course correction. In Jesus' name I pray these things. By the will of Jesus I pray these things. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Don't miss that he said, if you ask me anything in my name, for my name's sake, if you go through me, I will accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Jesus showed us himself how to have the perfect perspective of prayer. When in Gethsemane, he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, his desire. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Because Lord, you have the perfect perspective that I so desperately need. I just invite you all to contemplate this and think about it. Praying in the will of the Father instead of praying in the will of ourselves. In Hezekiah's story, we realize, we realize that God does sometimes answer prayers from our perspective. Be careful what you pray for. Because He may give it to you. Well, why would God do this? Why wouldn't He just go ahead and take Hezekiah? He knew what was going to happen. Why answer the prayer? Because He loves us so much that He allows us the freedom to do as we will and experience its fallout. That ultimately we might learn that Father does know best. We have the value of the years. We can look back at Hezekiah's life and the life of Judah and we can say... With perspective, God was right. And Hezekiah pressed for something that only brought evil to Judah. I guess the bottom line is this. Hezekiah was a great king. Hezekiah was a king of prayer. But God the Father is the king of prayer. Father, we pray that you will teach us how to respond to your will and to desire Lord the things that you desire and to set our hearts about what matters to you and about what is important to you I pray Father you would break us of the captivity of this life that says we have to somehow make life about us Father this whole thing is about you Father, though I had nothing to do with the organization, I apologize to you for the Olympic opening ceremony, but it was such a great celebration where your name was not mentioned once. For Jesus, everything that matters in this world comes back to you. And in the vastness of eternity, this, this tiny blip of history, Lord, it's like nothing before you. And so we still ourselves this morning and we pause to pray as Hezekiah prayed, you alone are God. The heavens and the earth and all created things praise you, Father. We ask that our perspective begin to shift 
more and more away from ourselves and on to the person of Jesus Christ for whose name's sake we are saved. Father, we praise you and honor you this morning as the one true King, the King of our prayers. In Jesus' name, Amen.